I know you all want answers, and believe me, so do I, and I'll do my best to get them, but right now, I have to do my job so that we're all safe. Safe? Safe from what? Sit down. Safe from our own panic, which is the biggest threat to this plane right now. Now, I'm going to ask the flight attendants to do a head count. Whatever happened to those people, we'll find them. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, Converts Edition. Now, being reminded not to panic is always useful, except that in the context of the movie that that scene is from, the people Cage is talking to really should be panicking. They have been, as the movie's title puts it, left behind. The rapture has come. The Lord has called back his faithful in the twinkling of an eye. Only the sinners and unbelievers remain. And that's not all, because let's face it, an earth populated only by sinners and unbelievers might be pretty great. What comes after the rapture is the tribulation, which is literally hell on earth with plagues and pestilence and the mark of the beast and so on and so on. I personally think that panicking in that context would be the correct response. But it's an odd movie, even on the Nick Cage scale of oddness. It is also the second version of Left Behind. They are both based on the book Left Behind. The first version stars Kirk Cameron, yes, Growing Pains Kirk Cameron, who's developed a pretty successful second career acting almost entirely in Christian-themed movies, And that first version is just as odd, and for the same reason. The entire Left Behind enterprise isn't intended as entertainment. It's intended to illustrate just how important it is to be among the real Christians, to not get left behind. It's intended to convert the unconverted and to make the already converted double down. You may not remember the Left Behind phenomenon, which is about 15 years ago, but the reason there are two versions of the lead book in the series is that the series and its related spinoffs wound up selling, as of 2016, 80 million copies, which isn't bad at all for books that aren't meant to be fun to read. And trust me, they they are not fun to read. So why did they sell so many copies? Did they succeed in getting unbelieving readers to come to Jesus? Did they succeed in getting people who think they are Christians to become whatever it is that a real Christian is? Amy Frickholm will help us get some answers. She is the senior editor at the Christian Century and the author of Rapture Culture, Left Behind in America, a quasi-anthropological study of the Left Behind fandom. But first, let's check in with Nick. I need to tell her the truth, and I need her to know that this wasn't her mother's fault, it was all mine. Every time I re-mention God, I walked away. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, tell me, how would you describe these books to someone who had never heard of them? Yes. So uh, there is a Christian worldview that isn't a part of all Christianity, but a, a very particular subculture that believes that there will be an event called the rapture in which Jesus will return very suddenly to earth and take with him all of the true believers and leave behind everybody else. And then everybody else will face a period of tribulation 
that will last seven years before there is then a return of Christ to earth and um, a battle between uh, Christ and Satan, which will then result in the end of the world. So the Left Behind series was a fictional take on this period from the rapture to the, to the end of the world. And it, it, it was written by um, Tim LaHaye, who is very famous in the Christian evangelical world for his understanding of this particular prophetic worldview. And Jerry Jenkins, who's what was well known in the Christian um, evangelical world for ghost writing a lot of things. He, for example, ghost wrote um, Billy Graham's biography, autobiography. Uh, he did a lot of ghost writing, and then he um, teamed up with Timothy LaHaye to write the Left Behind series. And it was very popular uh, for some years, beginning in, oh dear, 1995, and then finishing, I think, around 2004. It's very possible people have seen like the cultural detritus of this series because it was a true juggernaut. It spawned two different films, actually, I think multiple films, but two different versions of the first book, one starring Nicolas Cage, which if you're going to watch one of them, you should watch the one with Nicolas Cage. And also a children's series and a comic book series. And there were, you know, like workbooks. This was just a prime mover in this particular subculture. I don't think you could escape it if this was if this was the place that you you were. And, you know, it really transformed the relationship between uh, Christian publishing and mainstream outlets like Walmart, for example, because you could walk into in any Walmart around the year 1999 and see the left behind books displayed prominently. And that had not been true before then. So they really broke through some barriers between Christian popular culture and mainstream popular culture that was quite unexpected, I think, and really changed for me. I had been thinking about the Left Behind series and and Christian evangelicalism as a kind of subculture. But during that period when the Left Behind series was so popular, I just wondered if it wasn't more of the culture and then all the rest of us were subcultures. And I don't know how I don't know how to make sense of that now. I don't I don't have a ready go to um, answer for that. But at the time, it certainly made me start to believe that the go to belief about apocalypticism or the end of the world or whatever in American culture was the rapture. They had been that successful in spreading the idea. And I think I want to say a couple more details about the series content itself, because I think it's important in explaining how it got to be so popular with this particular, I won't say subculture, (laughs) culture, which is it is a, you know, a, a band of hardy outsiders comes together, a trope that is very familiar in American culture, right, Um, to save the world. It, they're a ragtag group. Now, I think they're only ragtag by the definition of evangelicals. They just happen. They're all, well, there's one person of color now that I recall. Um, and there's a pilot and there's a, a, a young woman, but they call themselves the tribulation force. And they're basically like the Avengers for the end times. Like they they go on missions and stuff. And there's there is a little theological complication with the fact that they can do this, right? Like if everything is preordained, how should they be able to have any influence at all, right? And we, 
we should also say that this is a total innovation in the history of rapture fiction, which I'm sure most listeners do not know that there is a history of rapture fiction, but there is quite a, a long tradition going back about a hundred years. And in that tradition, this group of people who become Christians after the rapture, or who at least realize the truth after the rapture, are, are destroyed by the Antichrist. There's no hope for them. Nothing good happens. But in the Left Behind series, there's this real transformation where these people go to go to battle with the Antichrist, They and they win. And that, that's really different than previous rapture fiction where they got their heads cut off and they got um, you know, imprisoned and um, nothing good happened before this. This is really the first rapture fiction where something good happens to the Christians. What did you set out to learn when you decided to study these people? So what I really wanted to understand was the relationship between reading fiction and religious belief. How much of the, how much of the left behind novels were, were real to people, were truth? And how much was fiction? How, where were those lines? What were they willing to play with? And what was absolute? Um, was everyone who read the novels a believer? Or were there people who read the novels with a great deal of skepticism, but still some pleasure? So I was curious about the relationship between reading and truth. And I was curious about how readers would describe their reading experience and, that, and how it might influence their religious lives. And to that end, I also attended Bible studies and I attended their churches. I very often visited them, the readers in their homes, um, met their family members, and just tried to understand the religious environment as well as um, the particular place of these novels in that environment. So did you have any presuppositions going into this? Did you, did you think about what you might find or have any assumptions about it? I had at least one terror, which was uh, that I might be converted or that the attempt to be converted would be a part of my experience. I think that might have been the thing I was most afraid of, that I would spend these interviews being talked to about my eternal uh, soul. And I really didn't want to talk to readers about that. (laughs) So I think that was a, a great fear I had. And I think that leads to some of, one of my presuppositions that was pretty quickly overthrown, which was I, I expected to enter into a very confident worldview. So I expected readers, especially believers who were also readers, to have a very confident worldview that they would then attempt to tell me about and explain to me why they were right and how their worldview worked and why it was better than my worldview and so on. And that turned out not to be at all the case. And I think it really points to something very interesting in evangelical culture that we just don't see when we view it from the outside or um, in the media, certainly, which is that evangelicalism, if you think about it, is based on this very, very peculiar idea that you do something called accepting Jesus into your heart or there you know, many varieties of that. And then you are changed, and that change happens somewhere in your being. And then nothing you do or say after that can prove that that actually took place, that that, that, that transformation actually happened. Presumably, you become a better person. Presumably, you stay on a path that is more righteous than others, perhaps. But in truth, there's this thing that happens that has no visible outward sign at all. 
And you see this in the Left Behind series because one of the main characters is a pastor who is left behind after the rapture. And he says to the other characters, down deep, way down deep, I knew I wasn't saved. But then as an, as an outsider to this culture, you kind of have to ask yourself, where is down deep? How, how, deep, how deep did he have to go to know that he hadn't actually been saved. And what I found in readers is that that kind of uncertainty raised a huge amount of anxiety. And so reading the Left Behind series was a kind of confirmation or an attempt to answer some of that anxiety as they went through. So there was a a lot of vulnerability on the part of readers who explained that, you know, what if I was left behind? And they would enter into this imaginative project in which they were the ones who were left behind. And that was very frightening. Um, I had one woman tell me this whole story that reminded me a lot of what I said at the beginning about my childhood, where she came home from church. This is a very devout woman. Um, You know, she has several children. Her husband um, is also a church member. And she came home one day and the garage door was open and everybody was gone from the house. And her first thought was, they've been raptured and I've been left. And when she told me that story, you know, she really started laughing kind of hysterically afterwards. Um, you know, and, and it was funny because, you know, she obviously hadn't been left behind, but buried, I think, in the subculture or the culture that is a part of left behind is this deep anxiety about being left behind. And it, it doesn't um, make one feel confident. It makes one feel frightened. <laughs> But then offers relief through the idea of the tribulation force, right? That's right. That's right. And many people express that relief, not only for themselves, but for their family members. Because if they weren't sure that they were saved, they were even less sure that family members might be saved. And so if there was some option to be saved after the rapture, then to many readers, that was a very comforting thought. That someone could see the truth after and could participate in bringing about good in the world after the rapture. You say, you know, someone could see the truth after, but what they really are hoping is that they'll be truly converted, truly saved. That's right. Because one of the anxieties I think exists in evangelical culture is the idea that you've been presented with the truth, but then choose not to actually believe it. You know, like that's that's the sin of the unbeliever. Uh, and especially of the evangelical, not really saved person, which again, which I agree, like that is such a, I don't want to use the word bizarre because it's such a common thing. It's so, it's so common in American culture to, you know, to locate religious belief in some internal location like that. And it's, it's an internal location that no one, including yourself, has access to. Even you don't have access to it. And that you can be an unbeliever, not really saved, even though you think you are saved. I mean, that is a, I'm, excuse my language, that's a real mind fuck. That's what that is. It is, absolutely. And that's why I think you don't find, or if you just dig even slightly below the surface, you don't find a great deal of confidence, a great deal of sense of, yeah, we've got it right. But it does help to have others. And I think that's why you have a tribulation force so it's not just one individual, it's kind of this collective. So you've got this, you've got a group of people. There's a fantasy there definitely about community, about connection, about, well, maybe I'm not so sure about myself, but I got this group of people who really have it together. 
And we're going to take a quick break because enough talk about God. Let's get to Mammon. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Blinkist. Blinkist is um, basically a life hack, which I think people still say that word. Anyway, it's a life hack because it takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes you can read or listen to anywhere on your phone, on your tablet, web browser. They have the latest titles from the bestsellers, as well as classic nonfiction titles you have always meant to read but never had time to. Now, personally, I use Blinkist to read the books that I feel like I should read but don't really want to, like, let's say, Hillbilly Elegy or uh, books by a certain New York Times author that everyone else really likes but I find extremely annoying. I can just uh, get through their book on Blinkist. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want are all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com with friends and try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial and 25% off your subscription, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash with friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Hydrant. Now, drinking enough water is critical for a healthy lifestyle. It increases your brain power, boosts your productivity, it prevents headaches, and increases your focus. It improves your skin and your mood. It helps your digestion and gives you energy. It prevents bad breath, and it can even help you lose weight. So... Hydrant has created a refreshing electrolyte powder that you mix directly into water to more efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. It hydrates you quickly and keeps you going longer. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. It packs a punch to help your body hydrate fast and stay hydrated. If you're looking for an extra boost of energy, there's also Hydrant Plus Caffeine, which contains 100 milligrams of caffeine from green tea. Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by an Oxford scientist. It's also loved by pro athletes, top performers, celebrities, and has thousands of five-star reviews. It's made with real fruit juice powder, is delicious and refreshing, and comes in a variety of flavors, including the new summer-friendly iced tea lemonade and fruit punch. I like the blood orange, which I have said before. It tastes actually like blood orange, not like tang. My husband prefers the lime, which I find a little too tart, but we both use it, especially before a workout or first thing in the morning. And you should use it too. It is backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love it, send it back for a full refund. You should just try it for yourself and see what I'm talking about. It tastes incredible. It works. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. Save even more with a monthly subscription. And we've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash friends or enter our promo code friends at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com slash friends or enter promo code friends at checkout. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Nice White Parents. Reporter Chana Jaffe-Walt examines the effect of a recent influx of white families upon a Brooklyn middle school traditionally filled with Black, Latinx, and Middle Eastern students. 
She then digs back 60 years into the school's history to discover repeated attempts by white parents to change the school. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, and reported by Chana Jaffe-Walt, who you might know from This American Life. Chana began reporting the story when she became a white parent in a public school. Nice White Parents is about white parents' 60-year relationship with the school down the block. It looks at attempts to change one Brooklyn public school over 60 years and is also a story about the most powerful force in one public school. The podcast examines questions about whether integration in public schools is a good thing, what happens when traditionally non-white schools have an influx of white families, what gets in the way of making a public school better, who decides what's best for everyone, whose voices matter most, and what drives people to make a difference. Episodes are available every Thursday, and you can listen to Nice White Parents wherever you listen to podcasts. I knew your message. I knew your words. I stood right here. I preached it. And I was good. But they're gone. They're gone. And. Oh, but no one can believe in are two different things. We're, we've explored the, the weird anxieties here. What else did you find out that may, might have been surprising to you? I think this is an important thing to notice. So one thing that happened throughout my research, it was happening at the time that the popularity of these of these novels was kind of exploding and they were selling a great number of copies. But what wasn't so widely known was that churches were buying enormous numbers of these books in, in bulk and, and sell, and not selling them and giving them away to people on the street because they believed that they were effective tools of evangelism. And so when you look at the sales numbers, which I'm sure not many people are going to do or have spent any time doing, but the first book in the series sold an overwhelming number of when you see when you see um, those sales figures like 60 million copies sold. um, Most of those are the first book in the series and a great number of those. And I don't know exactly how many were bought by churches, mega churches or other kind of evangelistic outfits to give away. So when you look at those sales numbers, you also have to remember that not every single one of those books was read by anyone, but they were bought. And in buying them and giving them away, I think those churches and those evangelists believed that they could bring people to salvation. They could allow people to make this transition from non-Christian to Christian, from non-evangelical or an unbeliever to believer using these books as an evangelistic tool. And so I really, when I was doing my, my research among readers, I really wanted to find somebody for whom the books had been an effective tool of conversion, because I really wanted to understand that. And I wanted to know what were the factors in that transformation? What was it about the books that spoke to them in that really profound way? And so I asked everyone, and readers at that particular time were not hard to find. Lots and lots of people were reading this book, especially where I was, which was in Durham, North Carolina, it was not hard to find readers. And so um, I was asking everyone, do you know anyone who's been converted by these books? And many, many readers would say to me, yes, I do. And then I would say, great, can you put me in touch with that person? 
And lo and behold, that contact would fall apart. Well, it wasn't actually someone I know personally. It was so-and-so who knows them. Great. Can you put to me in touch with so-and-so? But after I'd done this dozens of times, I had no one, no one who could speak to having been converted or even to having had the books have that a role in that kind of profound transformation. So finally, I wrote to Tyndale House, which is the publisher, and I said, they had been advertising how important evangelism was with these books. They had been saying things like the most, you know, the most important thing is that millions of lives have been altered with these books and you can be a part of this and so on. They were, they were putting out that kind of publicity. So I wrote to them and said, you know, I, I understand that millions of lives have been transformed by these books, but I would, but I've been having difficulty locating anyone. And I was wondering if you could share some of the thousands of letters that you say you have received. And so they um, sent me seven of those thousands of letters, which was, which for which I was very grateful, I should say, because um, without them, I would have had no evidence whatsoever. And of those seven letters that they sent me, most of them very short kind of email type things, four of them were reporting the conversion of someone else. And then three of them were a direct conversation about the person's own experience. And even those three were very vague. So So at the end of the day, I really had no evidence that the Left Behind series had in fact been transformative for very large numbers of people or really for anyone. And um, that was that was confusing for me. But it it was another one of those things in my research that was quite surprising because I did expect to get accounts of those things and I didn't. So, number one, I love how much work you did for that. That is a level of dedication that I am not sure that I can claim. Um, as a journalist, you really wanted to get that story. And it, you also sound like you were being sincere, even after the dozens of times that this uh, contact falls through. And I'm not sure if I could maintain my sincerity. Um, but I, I'm i also impressed by uh, your willingness to believe that these books would be successful tools of evangelism. Because from my perspective, like— I just don't see how you scare an unbeliever into belief. You know what I mean? Like, um, you could probably get someone who is marginal, maybe, you know, like someone who'd grown up in evangelical culture but drifted away and still felt some guilt about that, let's say. Like, I can imagine that person reading the Left Behind books and deciding, oh, you know what? Like, I need to get back to this. Like, this is something that may happen, right? But I look at these books, and that's actually one of the reasons I was so fascinated by them, is I almost read them on a dare to myself. Like, all right, Anna. Like, you don't believe right now. (laughs) Let's see if these books can can do anything for you. And it was just they're I mean, number one, they're so dismissive and critical and contemptuous of people who are not evangelicals in in the book themselves, like the way that they talk about people who are not saved. Oh, absolutely. There's not even there's no attempt actually to to reach out or feel sympathy or or connect with people who don't share that worldview. Yeah, it's um 
or just contempt, I would say. <laughs> right. It's unlikely to help them overcome whatever whatever difficulty they are having in your worldview and theirs. But I know from reading your book that these books did serve a purpose. It just wasn't to evangelize, right? First of all, I, I think about how much fear has been poured into this particular aspect of this religious doctrine, this idea of the rapture, of being left behind, of being out in the cold when everybody else, everyone you love, your children, your spouse, I don't know, your partner, your your grandparents, everyone is gone and you are alone. You are left in the world. And so much fear has been poured into that. If you think about those horrible movies that were made in the 70s, but were so popular in evangelical culture, in part because um, the military donated a large number of uh, film projectors to churches in the early 70s. And then someone had to make movies that could be shown. And then um, these movies that all focused on the rapture and the tribulation were were spread out through uh, Christian, through evangelical Christianity. And in those movies, you also have a, a person who um, doesn't really get it and is left behind. And she faces horrible uh, trauma. And um, so, so that a lot of us remember having an experience of watching those films when we were small, when we were children, when we were vulnerable. And so that fear, I think, has stayed in, as, an, as an emotional um, touch point. And then these books might be able to then touch back to that fear, not to cause conversion, but to cause the absolute need to reconfirm your worldview and stay within it. So I think the effect of the books is policing the boundaries of what already is and what we already believe. So the confirmation of our worldview is much better served by a book like this than the transformation of our worldview, as you point out. It's sort of a a sick cycle almost, right? Is that you feed fear and then soothe fear and then feed fear and then soothe fear. And as a former evangelical myself, as a person who rededicated her life several times between the age of 11 and the age of 18, um, you know, I, I can understand that cycle of fear and then the need to reconfirm and so on, to go back over and over again to that same wound and see if we can fix it this time. It does seem like there's sort of a perverse incentive built into the Left Behind books that way, that... <laughs> that maybe you hold off getting saved so that you can be, you know, on the tribulation force. And do you think that any, do you think that had an effect? Oh, I do. I mean, I think it was a little more in a broader cultural sense. That's how I understood it, was that evangelicalism, especially during this period, was transforming from a very outsider subculture kind of thing to some to to a force, a religious force that could do battle at the highest levels of government or you know that could change culture. And you know, previous to that kind of '90s outbreak, beginning in the 1970s, certainly building up to the late '90s. Previous to that, evangelicals were very marginal or considered themselves to be a very marginal outside group. Um, with very little ability to have an impact on the culture. And as their power built through, I think, the um, 
early 70s and then into the late 90s, they began to change that narrative. We can have a huge impact on culture. We can make a difference. We can change uh, this demonic American civilization. And so I think that with that, the um, eschatological story of rapture and tribulation changed because that story had been really born out of a sense of isolation. It was born out of the fundamentalist divide in the early 20th century. And it, it came out of a sense of we are the outsiders. We are the marginal. We are the ones who the world is against. And yet they have maintained this sense of persecution. And yet it is the most powerful narrative in American culture, right? This is kind of what you referenced it when you first started talking about the Left Behind series is that Americans love to picture themselves as the ragtag band of outsiders. Nobody's mainstream. Nobody's the central, uh, the central power. And so Americans have very often constructed religious identity and especially any kind of uh, religious power as the power of the outsider the ability of the outsider to transform uh, the culture. And so that has never stopped in evangelicalism having supreme power um, of this narrative construction of yourself as the outsider. And the mental flexibility that is required to feel persecuted even as your chosen person is president of the United States. The mind, it's just, it's, I mean, the brain is weird, and we all have um, lots of misfires <laughs> in our thinking, but it's still pretty astonishing. It's, it, it must be um, – I almost have some sympathy or empathy for, for that state of mind. It must be difficult to maintain. The narrative of persecution is so important to this particular culture it wouldn't make any sense to not be persecuted. I mean, if you look at, I remember thinking about this in relationship to Columbine and to the, to the shootings there. One of the narratives that came out of the Columbine shootings was that the people who were killed were killed because they were Christians. And now for a word from our sponsors. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Rothy's. As summer turns to fall, Rothy's is here to make your day with comfortable, washable, and sustainable products. Rothy's shoes are incredibly comfortable with no break-in period thanks to their seamlessly knit design. With many chic styles to choose from, Rothy's shoes are the perfect pair for any adventure. The newest addition to Rothy's line is their first adjustable sneaker. The lace-up is out-of-this-world comfortable and, as with all their shoes, is knit from thread made from repurposed plastic water bottles. And it is true, all the Rothy shoes are incredibly comfortable. Uh, they started out with like this ballet slipper type that I happen to know many activists use to walk around the halls of Congress. Imagine how comfortable the adjustable ones are. I'm going to have to order some myself. I'll just have to decide what color. It's still the middle of summer, but fall is coming. Hmm. They do have many, many colors, prints, and patterns to choose from. Rothy's are available in a whole range of styles. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and returns. 
Rothy's has kept over 5 million single-use plastic bottles out of landfills and transformed them into their signature thread, which is then knit into beautiful, sustainable products. Check out all the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorite shoes. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Stamps.com. As we adjust to the new normal, we still need to be smart about how we do business, maybe even smarter. Luckily, there's a Stamps.com to make things easier. Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefits of Stamps.com in recent months. That would include me. They've been able to keep their businesses running and avoid the crowds at the post office, all from their own computers. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and avoid going to the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts of up to 62% and no residential surcharges. Simply use your computer to print U.S. official postage, 24-7, any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. And once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. It is that simple. With Stamps.com, you get great discounts, too. Five cents off of every stamp and up to 62% off of USPS and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. Right now, my listeners will get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. So, you know, I haven't really minded the whole work-at-home thing, except when you work at home and your partner is there all the time, and you don't have a lot to do, the refrigerator suddenly becomes like a real central object in your life. And, um, you know, I I gained the COVID-19, maybe not 19, but I was eating sugar pretty much nonstop, which is why I was so pleasantly surprised to discover a box of Magic Spoon cereal delivered to me when they decided to sponsor the show. It is zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, only three net carbs in each serving. And it tastes just like the cereals of your childhood, or in my case, not my childhood, because my parents like the sweetest cereal I had was Cheerios. So actually, this kind of feels naughty on a few different levels. And there are four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes amazing, maybe too good to be true. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. I happen to like the chocolate flavor. My husband likes the fruity flavor. This is good because we don't have to share. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab your own variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code that is WFLT at checkout. You will get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It is backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No question to ask. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use the code WFLT for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. Oh, God! I am kneeling before you right now asking you, God, forgive me of my sins. 
asking you, give me one more chance. To receive you in. Forgive me, God. Use me, Lord, please, just use me. Back to the interview. So now the biggest question I have, (laughs) the question that kind of drove my interest in this subculture to begin with, why are American evangelicals so bad at the thing that the very name that we call them, (laughs) evangelical is to spread the good news. The idea is to fulfill the Great Commission, right? To go out and spread the word and get more people on board for Jesus. And yet, they seem to choose tactics that I don't think are intentionally bad, but they almost always, it it seems to me, actually serve the purpose that you were talking about with the Left Behind books. They don't expand the culture. They police it and cement it. I think that's right. Um, I'm trying to think immediately about statistics, for example, the growth of evangelicalism um, versus its decline. I think those are really hard to come by right now. I mean, certainly the largest growing group of um, religiously in America right now is unaffiliated or none, and most of them are leaving uh, evangelicalism. So, but I don't know if we can say that it's not expanding culturally. I'm just not sure. Um, Because certainly evangelicals have relied, while we've talked about this power of, of the narrative of persecution, the other thing that evangelicals have relied on is the power of attraction. So you put really attractive people on stage and you dress them in beautiful clothes and you, you know, you, you, you create an atmosphere of attraction where people want to be a part of whatever that thing is. And I think that that, you know, accounts for, to a large degree, the growth of megachurches, for example, are kind of like these Walmarts, you know, of American Christianity, where you can be a part of something that feels um, really attractive to you for whatever reason. You want some of that. And so I think that's another piece. Yeah, I think that that is also a different flavor of evangelism. And in fact, my vague recollection of the Left Behind series is that there's a bit of tis- tisking at megachurches, that, um, that that is a comfortable sort of Christianity, that they don't demand that much. And... Uh, you know, I, I do think, yes, I mean, I think that uh, the attraction principle is definitely the one that works. If you create a church that also has daycare <laughs> and, um, you know, a food court and um, a good, you know, uh, basketball league, you are going to get people to come. And some of them may find themselves attracted to the testimony that is given, too, right? It is this rapture culture that feels to me like an inward-facing culture. 
that seems right. That it has never been an effective tool of evangelism, I think, is pretty widely demonstrable. You know, that it, that it has policed plenty of Christians into staying within a very narrow, some very narrow walls, because the fear of being left behind is so strong, um, I think is also clear. Um, but the idea that, that it in itself, this idea that if you don't do X, you will be left behind, um, hasn't been effective as a tool of evangelism. And maybe it hasn't even really expanded the boundaries. But I think you're right that it's because it's a wall-building exercise. It's an enclosure exercise. We, the true believers, are walled off against that big, bad world. And it's hard to have that mentality and a welcoming one at the same time. Sure, come on in. There's room for you here, too. Those are, very, those are two mentalities that are very hard to set side by side. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Anna. I do love your show, and thank you so much for having me. And that is it for the show. I cannot recommend Amy's book highly enough for those of us who are somewhat obsessive about this rapture culture. And talking to Amy today, I was reminded of something, which is, as bad as things seem today, people have always been worried about the end of the world. And you don't have to use that fear to police your community, to keep people out of it. You can turn that fear into compassion and expand your community and welcome people into it. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>